Hi, this is Matthew Reinhardt, the creator of the Game of Thrones, a pop-up guide to Westeros, and you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. This is a spoiler alert. This podcast is currently re-watching Season 3 of Game of Thrones, but we will be discussing it in the context of the most recently aired episode of Game of Thrones. That would be Season 4, Episode 10. So if you're not current with the series and you don't want to be spoiled of events in Season 4, you may want to avoid listening to this podcast until you are current. And if you are current, of course, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. Hey, and welcome to Podcast Winterfell, our final Season 3 rewatch episode. We're rewatching Season 3, Episode 10, entitled Misa, written by the showrunners David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and directed by the fabulous David Nutter. My name is Matt Murdock. I am from PodcastWinterfell.com, and that's where you can find all of our social media and contact information, back episodes of the podcast podcatcher links and all that good stuff please take a moment to leave me a review on itunes or on stitcher because your written review of the podcast helps me stay more noticeable to other great game of thrones fans just like yourself and thus if we have more people listening then the better our conversation gets across the board uh also a very good reason to leave me a review on itunes or stitcher you're running out of time, though. You have until Monday, February 2nd, to leave a written review, not just the stars kind, on iTunes or on Stitcher. And that qualifies you to be entered into a contest where I'll take all of the usernames for anyone who has left a review up to this point for the podcast, up till February 2nd. You're all thrown into a hat, and I will draw the winners of a set of season four DVDs or Blu-rays, your choice. And that includes international users as well. So if you international users have a different format, don't worry. I'll get it to you in your proper, you know, format. I know that there's different specifications for uh, different types of players across the world. And I'll make sure that you get the right ones for your thing. But the only way you can win is to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher. So please do so. Also, if you have any other feedback about uh, these particular episodes that we've been covering or the podcast in general, uh, you can find, uh, again, all of those links uh, at podcastwinterfell.com. Feel free to contact me anytime. Due to my schedule, of course, I'm not able to uh, read your feedback live from week to week because I'm pre-recording these episodes way back in 2014, last year. Um well, for you folks now, it's last year. Uh, it's still not that far away, right? 30 days. But I recorded them uh, before Thanksgiving. Anyway, we'll have, uh, we'll have your feedback all condensed into a single feedback episode for Season 3 next week. So, again, you only have until this Monday, February 2nd, to get me your 
feedback about any of these podcasts that we've been doing or uh, your own uh, thoughts about rewatching season three with me, I would love to hear from you and love to include your feedback in that special podcast. So please do so. Uh, leave it soon. Leave your podcast uh, or your your episodes feedback for season three as soon as possible. Won't have any news for you regarding the new season of Game of Thrones this week, obviously, either. But I do include a news section at the beginning of our, our Feast Dance Tandem Reads. Those come out on Wednesdays. Check those out. If you're not reading the books, it's okay. We keep the news TV-only friendly. And uh, so if you're an MBR, as Axel Foley likes to call you, then you're safe to listen to those. Whew. Okay, I've spilled off enough about the podcast, the contest, the feedback, the news. Yeah, we got it all covered. So let's talk about Season 3, Episode 10, Misa. Again, written by David Benioff and Dan Weiss, the showrunners, and directed by David Nutter. The Screenshot, an analysis of this week's episode. And as I have been doing with all of these episodes, I try to take each character as I come to them on an episode and then just follow them all the way through to the end of their storyline for the episode. So, technically, this episode begins with Roose Bolton, so I'll try and cover that real quick. And uh, since Arya is part of this opening scene as well, then I'll include her right after that. So, you have all of these horrors going on at the Twins, and you think about what all has happened and you also have to think how carefully this whole atrocity was really orchestrated. I mean, just think about it from Roos's perspective himself. He had to have enough men to take advantage of the rest of the Stark army, more or less being drunk, um, during the celebration. Um, it looks like they just sealed a lot of them up in a tent and burned them alive. And that's just, uh, terrible uh but but effective because there probably aren't going to be too many people left to oppose bolton uh being made seat in the north here right which we find out in this episode maybe there's a pocket here or there but i'd say for the most part um it's the destruction of this army that really makes it possible for kind of tywin's promise which we find out uh to come through true without much complication um, there are still possible pockets of resistance, I suppose. Um, and uh, I actually, I, I want to kind of correct myself uh, from what I just recorded, and I'm not going to go back and edit it, but um, I, for the last episode, I think I had questions about whether Blackfish Tully was alive or not. Um, I had forgotten that in this episode, the Boltons tell us that he escaped. But, of course, the question does remain about Brendan Blackfish Tully is, where did he escape to? Will we ever see him again? Um, if he does want to fight the Boltons, or um, even Frey kind of says here, I mean, who would he go to? And, of course, there's still the question that we have hanging about Edmure. Um, Frey says that he's Lord of River Run now, and that Edmure spent the night in the dungeon. But is he still in the dungeon at the end of Season 4? Uh, will we ever find out? That's a question to ask as well. Um, now, as for Bolton as Warden of the North, uh, and when Frey asks him if he'll go to Winterfell someday, um, 
we we see that someday perhaps uh, happening a little quicker than we might have suspected because right after Moat Kalen, it seems that's where the Boltons are heading at the end of season four, right? And of course, if 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 you still had trouble putting together that Theon's captor was a Bolton, then I guess you got your definitive answer in this scene with Bolton and Frey, right? I personally feel like anyone should have figured it out much, much earlier. Um, and even if you hadn't, by the start of episode nine, when Rob holds that one big X out, uh, it's, it's one of his map pieces and it's just like this big X. I think you should have figured it out by then, especially once you see what Bolton does to Rob at the end of the episode. But, uh, again, I guess if you didn't guess, um, because of episode nine, then this would definitely, uh, be a reason for them to put it in the Bolton dialogue here. Plus, uh, we get, we do get an answer as to what happened to all those ironborn at Winterfell as well. Uh, and we find out who truly trashed Winterfell. It's all Ramsey and we'll talk about him in a few minutes, but, uh, I'm going to go back to Arya now cause she was in that first scene as well. Um, Goodness gracious, you got to think how horrific it is for her to see her brother's body, his head cut off and replaced by Grey Wind's head, right? And I guess that's what sets her off when her and the Hound uh, pass by those troops talking about it. Um, before that, though, I, I just right back to this first scene, I just want to say I thought it was really smart of the Hound to pick up a fray banner in order to keep them safe as they were leaving the twins. So he made a good call on that. And he's even kind of covered up uh, himself a little bit when uh, him and Arya are going by those troops. But she hears them talking about um, about what happened with Rob and Greywind. And um, that's Arya really committing her first out-and-out blood-for-blood kill, right? I mean, I suppose maybe... Uh, because we were also devastated by the the Red Wedding, maybe we, there was just a little hint of satisfaction seeing her get that kill. But more importantly, especially as we've seen Arya's storyline go on, it has become seriously disturbing. And um, you think about this, the way she plays the sweet, innocent girl to get the man's attention, uh, even here, that is calculated. Um I still feel like this is more of a crime of passion uh, or more, at least more spontaneous for certain because the talk of the wolf head that she overhears, um, I think that's what sets it off more than anything. Um, still, obviously, she is headed down a path that uh, no kill, I'm wondering, will ever satisfy her. Uh, and that may be the most disturbing thing of all to think about um when you think of her list that she's had for a few seasons now uh over the course of season three and season four several several of her you know quote-unquote dream kills have been eliminated um but i i think that the ones that have been eliminated that would satisfy her most like a, a joffrey or i don't know maybe the hound but since she couldn't actually kill him or or wouldn't um, either way, those kills that might have staved off her quest to kill eluded her in a way. She didn't get really get to kill the hound. She got to leave him behind, but she didn't get to kill him. 
Um, she didn't get to kill Joffrey and that crazy laugh when she found out in season four, um, that, um, that, uh, Lysa Aaron had been killed. I mean, there, there are so many things about, uh, <laughs> about poor Arya's storyline that just point towards just that cold blooded killer eventually. Now you got still got Cersei who's still very much alive. Um, but I mean, all of this, all of this compounding just leads to a really dark season for Arya in season four. And, and I think beyond you have to really worry about the girl. I mean, cause now it seems like she gave that coin to that guy and she's going to go probably where Jockin told her to, to go, um, with the coin. So you have to wonder I I just worry that there's not going to be any Stark identity left in Arya by the time that uh, she gets done with all of this because she's just becoming more and more calculated, more and more cold. Um, and the other thing you have to worry about for this upcoming season is you think, okay, well, she's going to have to learn some things to become like Jock and Hagar. Um, how dangerous are those things? Could she even, I mean, is there a chance that maybe doing what she's doing right now puts her in more peril than if she'd have stayed behind and just tried random kills on her own. Um, so there's that to worry about Arya. And I guess that's all I have to say about her. So we'll move on to King's Landing here real quick. Okay. Maybe not so quickly, uh, but we'll talk about Sansa first. Now, you know, Ken from Cripples, Bastards, and, and Broken Things adores this character, and really so do I. And because of that, there's one thing that I find extremely annoying about the way the show is portraying Sansa with those constant little freaky bits of extreme naivete. It, it seems to me more like that they're trying to make Sansa almost comic relief in some points, and I hate that. Um... Here, of course, in, in this episode, it's the whole sheep dung thing. Um, but yet in season four, they they try to make it seem like Sansa changed, like, you know, basically overnight so that she could lie and save Littlefinger's butt. And that's just simply not the case for the character of Sansa. Now, this isn't anything against Sophie Turner's performance, because I think that Sophie puts layers in her performance where you can almost see the thoughts that are going through Sansa's mind um, that we book readers know that she's having. So I think that she does very good with that about sometimes not even saying anything, but just relaying um, what you know that she's feeling. I, th I think she does a great job at that. I, I blame more Dave and Dan because I feel like they, they place her uh, constantly uh, in these situations where she's made to be naive and, and the dialogue, um, that they give her, it just, it's just seems to defeat what is the point of this character to me, which is a clear growth and a clear project, uh, trajectory of learning. Um, especially if you just, I mean, if, if you think from near the end of season one, to where she is at the end of season four. There is layers of growth in there. Everything that happens, she soaks up. It's part of the game that she's learning. 
Um, it's not like she just woke up one day in the area and became a great liar or even the, the game player that maybe she, it seems like she's going to end up becoming. She's been observing and digesting the game, um, like I said, since the end of season one. Um, and that's why she's very good at the game in season four. I, I just wanted to remind folks of that um, because I know many of you aren't big fans of Sansa, but there's there's a reason. You know, there's a lot going on in the background with Sansa um, that maybe as a book reader you pick up on more, but I think the show should take the time to accentuate that. Just saying. I love my girl Sansa. I know Ken does too. So, did my bit for him. Um, now, as for the council meeting that Tyrion gets called away from Sansa uh, to, to go to, first let me just point out that you look at that tension between Tywin and Joffrey in this scene, and, you know, I can definitely see how someone might have come to the conclusion during season four that Tywin had some kind of role in Joffrey's assassination, right? I mean, I personally don't believe that's the actual case. And I, I know that I, I've even thrown that idea out there for people to digest a little bit. Um, I sometimes lie about plot lines as they're happening, just, just to keep from spoiling non-book readers. So uh, forgive me that indulgence of, of trying to do things. No. Wait, what I'm doing is actually I'm presenting the whole gamut of possibilities so that you listeners can uh, think for yourselves as to what uh, what the solution is. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, I think any non-book readers who uh, thought that Tywin might be involved in the Purple Wedding had plenty of reasoning uh, to believe it. And this scene is one of those scenes. Another scene we saw in season three where, you know, he walked up and intimidated Joffrey right in, in the throne. Um, though, those, you could cite those as possible, uh, hints that, that Tywin might've, uh, finally had his fill of Joffrey. But like I said before, I don't believe that's the case personally. Um, on that note, this is also the, the second time that Tyrion has threatened the king's life. Uh, in front of Cersei, well, uh, in front of most of the council, actually. Um, so when you think about that, and you think about Cersei kind of instantly looking to Tyrion and, and saying, you did it, you know, when, when Joffrey dies at the Purple Wedding, um, can, can you blame her? I mean, he throws this line out, right now kings are dropping like flies. I mean, that's definitely a threat. And whether Tyrion has any true malice intended in that threat or not... Um, you just can't blame Cersei for reaching to the wrong conclusion about who was behind her son's death. Now, granted, Cersei does go way out of her way to try and stack all of the evidence in Tyrion's trial against him. So I will give you that she should have pulled back uh, at that point. And she's trying to sway judges and she's trying to do all of this and that. She's trying to rig it. Um, but I don't think that it's because she doesn't believe it. I don't think it's just to hurt Tyrion. I think it's because she truly believes that Joffrey uh, was killed by Tyrion. And I think that reasons like this, the th at Tyrion and Sansa's wedding, he threatened the king. Here, he threatens the king. And um, there's another point, and that is the fact that, you know, there is so much bad blood between Cersei and, and Tyrion that we've seen build up on seasons two and in this third season 
that probably once Joffrey dies in, in season four, she may not even look at it as Tyrion trying to hurt Joffrey so much as it is to get back at her uh, for things, because that's just the way she perceives uh, Tyrion in a lot of ways. So I uh, can't really say that I blame Cersei too much for her leap of accusing Tyrion because of scenes like this here in the council. And uh, there are also scenes after the council meeting is concluded that we see why Tyrion will eventually um, kill his own father, uh, kill Tywin. Because Tywin really says hurtful kind of things to Tyrion in these scenes. And um, then with the way everything with the trial and everything goes and the way Tywin um, is manipulating things behind closed doors to try and get Jaime back as, as his heir... I, I think it's easy now, easier now, looking back on it, uh, after reacquainting myself with some of these scenes, understanding why Tyrion uh, had to go see his father at the end of season four. I mean, man, I wish he wouldn't have done it. But now that he did, um, that's the way it goes. And now he's on a boat, I guess, going somewhere with Varys. Maybe. Maybe they're just going to take a tour around the bay and come back. Who knows? Um, and this of course is the scene that also puts all of that letter writing that we talked about earlier, uh, throughout the course of this season together for us. Right. And we see that Taiwan was kind of the master orchestrator of everything with the red wedding and his offering of a reasoning as to why do something so atrocious was that it would save thousands of lives. Um, that's the excuse any good general uses, right? Um, yeah, let's drop a bomb on them instead of instead of uh, going man to man because in the long run it'll save thousands of lives. And I don't, I don't, I'm not a, a military strategist. I don't know anything about any of this. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, it just seems wrong to me. But what do you think is Tywin's reasoning a good enough reason to justify? Uh, what happened at the Red Wedding. You let me know with your emails or your phone calls. Um, and uh, let's go back to Tyrion and Sansa, I guess, who, of course, now are doomed to never be happy, given that the news of the Red Wedding has, has reached Sansa. Now, I love the, the juxtaposition of the difference between them before this council meeting happens and then after the council meeting and even into their first scene together in season four, um, because they are just so miserable. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, Tyrion is even miserable before the end of this episode. But, um, the thing is, is that at the beginning of this episode, there might've even been a hint of, uh, a reason to ship them together because they, they seem so good, but, of course, we all know that is doomed now. Uh, we see that played out through season four. But I, I will say this, that even though this happens, it's it's kind of interesting to see that, that Tyrion and Sansa do kind of help each other out at Joffrey's wedding. Uh, Sansa picks up the cup for Tyrion. Um, Tyrion's trying to get Sansa out of there. There's, they, you know, And that's just because Tyrion and Sansa are decent people. Maybe they're stuck in a loveless marriage, but they're still just decent people. And they don't want to see someone who, I guess, they're around a lot get hurt. So even if there's no sense of, of real love, um, 
there's just that human caring aspect. And um, I, I've said this before. Uh, I know I, uh, people, most people will agree with me, is that um, up until the last part of season four, Tyrion seemed way too goody-goody two-shoes, so to speak. Too much of the good guy in the white hat kind of guy. Um, of course, the end of season four does change that. It dissipates it a little bit. But um, I think we see an evolution in both of these characters uh, right in their last little bit of season four as compared to where they are right here. Because Tyrion is much darker and Sansa is seemingly much more ambitious. So uh, we'll have to uh, see what happens. And remember, what's happened to Sansa has happened over time, people, not overnight. Um, so just keep that in mind. Now, as for Varys and Shay, which is the next thing I guess to talk about. I mean, think about it. If only Shay had taken that money and left, how different might things have been for Tyrion if, if she had just done that? Um, she wouldn't have had to have been a pawn to use at the trial. She wouldn't have probably wouldn't have been betting Tywin. Um, she wouldn't have ended up dead. And basically her refusal um, to leave when Varys asks her to is what ends her. Uh, I think it was probably love and stubbornness mostly that motivated her refusal. But I have heard people theorize that Shay may have been working for Tywin all along. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this because the people who say this, they, they cite these kind of reasons and some of it is circumstantial, but some of it is kind of interesting. They say that, uh, first of all, Shay was picked up by Bronn, right? In the Lannister camp that was headed by Tywin. And we never really find out. I don't know who exactly she was picked up from. Um, also the other thing is they say that Tywin goaded Tyrion, maybe like baited him by insisting him to him that he not take a horse to King's Landing. Um all of that again at the end of season 1. Um they they think that because Tywin knew that Tyrion you know hated him so much, uh almost as much as he hated Tyrion, that Tyrion would do the exact opposite of what he says. That's that's another reasoning that they give. Then you get this scene here where she absolutely refuses to leave uh, Varys, or absolutely refuses to leave and throws the jewels back at Varys and, and says, you know, have him tell me himself, um, which seems to me to be legitimate, but she is refusing to go. Uh, and then in season four, you know, we think that Tyrion is sending her away, but whoa. Wait, she comes back. She testifies. She testifies against Tyrion. She um, then starts betting Tywin. Um, now, I I kind of think that Shay's involvement in the trial was actually directed more by Cersei than Tywin. That's what I would think, um, because we do have uh, the scene in this episode where Tywin says that he resisted having Tyrion killed when he was just a baby, right? And um, even after everything had escalated in the trial by um, Shay's testimony, Tywin had promised to Jaime to send Tyrion to the wall instead of killing him if he admitted his guilt in exchange for, of course, Jaime um, giving up the the king's guard and getting his lands and title. But, uh, so, I kind of don't really want to buy into this theory, but I, I think a couple of compelling facts 
um, is the whole thing about the fact that it is Tywin's camp where Che comes from. That could be a coincidence. Um, but Tywin saying, no whores, no whores. And yet, what does he do? He ends up with a whore. Now, why would a man who seemingly hates Tyrion having whores um, take the exact same whore for himself? So you might say that he was goading Tyrion to take this whore to court um, and Shea was a plant. Of course, you could also just say that Tywin is a hypocrite. So, um, I don't know. What do you think of the theory that Shay was working for Tywin all along? Um, was she? Or is Tywin just a hypocrite and Shay just was a happy coincidence? Let me know what you think. Now, uh, moving on to the scene with Tyrion and Cersei. Um, here's another marker for why Cersei might be be convinced that Tyrion could kill Joffrey. I mean, here, like I pointed this out uh, a little earlier, but they talk about her love for her children, Cersei's love for her children. And I really kind of felt for Cersei in this moment, uh, in this particular scene, especially watching it the first time around, um, talking about our good King Joffrey in such a lovely way, as he should be talked about, as Bubba and Catfish from the Joffrey of Podcasts will tell you uh, on a momentary basis. Um, on a second basis, uh, every minute of the day. But, um, well, she talked kindly about him for the most part anyway, I guess. Uh, even Cersei can sometimes be uh, an unstraightener. So we need to straighten the unstraighteners, right? Uh, anyway, she, uh, she confesses her love of her children to Tyrion, and she has done so on numerous occasions. Um, and because I think that she is influenced by the fact that she has such a bad opinion of her brother. She has such a bad opinion of, of, of Tyrion that on those final few seconds of the lion and the rose in season four, um, maybe she's pointing to Tyrion's motive as being merely to hurt her more so than to hurt Joffrey. And he knows that the way Tyrion can hurt her the most is to take her children away from her as he did with Marcella. Don't forget, uh, he sent Marcella away. So, there you go. Um, he'd done it once. Why wouldn't he do it again? This time a little more extreme because he had already made his threats. Uh, so I don't think there's any reason to see Cersei's jumping to conclusion as being any more irrational than Cersei can sometimes be. Let me just put it that way. And and there's another point to look at uh from a rewatch perspective in this scene between Tyrion and Cersei that shines a little bit to me. And that that's that Cersei says she will not marry Loras Tyrell. And in season four, we definitely see what links she'll go to in order to keep that from happening. She, that in order to keep from having to marry Loras, she threatens Tywin that she will disclose her and Jamie's relationship to any who will listen. I mean, if he makes her go through with that betrothal. So, um, she keep, makes good on her promise to, to Tyrion here that she will not marry Loras Tyrell. Um, so, uh, last King's Landing bit is with Jamie, and he and Brienne, of course, make it back into King's Landing, and it's the first time we've seen them since the Bear and the Maiden Fair, I guess. And, um, they have a, a, a brief kind of almost looking after each other kind of scene, and then uh, you don't know what's going to happen with Brienne. Of course, we know that she's stuck around now, but at the time, 
you thought maybe that'll be the end or maybe Brienne will um, try to get Sansa back. We, we had a lot of expectations about season four, none of which really panned out very well. But oh well. Um, I remember on a first watch of, of this episode when Jamie finally got into Cersei's room, I was thinking, what was going on in Cersei's head? I mean, is she surprised? Um, is that look fear? Is that look revulsion? What What is that look that she's giving Jamie? And then, of course, he looks down at his hand. And as the way season four kind of panned out, it seems to me that Jamie looking down at his hand in this particular scene says it all. Um, I remember in season four, the whole, um, hey, let's do it by our son's body scene. Uh, um yeah, the the quote-unquote rape scene, but we won't talk about it in that context. Here's what Brian in Japan, I recall, uh, had written me an email uh, saying. He pointed out that Jamie only became aggressive after um, Cersei had withdrawn away from when Jamie touched her with, um, I can't remember if it was, if he had the golden hand yet or if it was still just the stump. Um, but when she kind of touched, uh, that, that crippled part of him, that's what, and withdrew, that's what, uh, really angered Jamie and made him force himself upon her. So maybe I, I, now I look back at this, at this look that Cersei's given Jamie and I'm, I'm wondering, is it more, um, fear and revulsion? Than, than surprise. I wanted to think it was surprise. I don't know why. I don't think I should ship Cersei and Jamie ever, right? But for some reason, I wanted it to be surprise, and it seems less and less and less and less and less like that. But what do you think? What do you think was that look on Cersei's face? Let me know once again. And I think that's all I've really got for King's Landing. So the next main character up here is Bran, but I'm going to put Bran and Samwell together since they, they meet up pretty quickly. But first I'll talk about the, uh, the rat cook story here. You know, we get that about how the gods punish those for breaking guest rights, but I don't know. So far seems like just a story, right? I mean, all through season four, we don't see a fray really at all. And I guess you have to assume that Walder Frey is still doing well. The Boltons manage to make it back to the Dreadfort. They take Moat Kalen. They head for Winterfell, it seems. They've, they're they on a pretty good pass. Um, I guess their one failure is the fact that Locke isn't successful at, at retrieving either Bran or Rickon or killing them or whatever the intent was there. There's a possibility uh, of sorts that the Stark boys, I guess, could come back to haunt them at some point in the future. But right now, I got to say, it seems pretty unlikely that it'll be Bran since he's way up under a tree somewhere. So once again, just like uh, I've asked in prior episodes, I have to ask again, is Rickon, given the situation that Arya's in, that John's in, that Sansa's in, is Rickon the, really the last hope? for the name and bloodline of Stark to actually continue. And where the heck is he? Where are he and Osha? Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, Sam, of course, uh, meets up with the gang and gives them little uh, dragon glass things to fight things. Uh, 
because he's certainly not going to take him back north of the wall. But he gets back to Castle Black and getting back to Castle Black and informing Maester Aemon. I mean, if not for his warnings, and Aemon never writes a raven. And Davos never reads it and Stannis never comes. And think how differently that might have turned out for season four at the wall. I mean, yes, the Night's Watch, they kind of held off the first night of attacks from Mance's army and from the gang behind, Egret's gang behind, but um, it seemed like then the only alternative for John was to try and personally kill Mance himself, like kind of to cut the head off the snake, which he failed at, need I remind you, if not for Stannis coming to save uh, Jon Snow, um, John might have been dead. Uh, if Stannis hadn't come in there. So if if Sam doesn't get to Castle Black, if he doesn't survive, then Davos uh, doesn't have any leverage uh, to save his own life for freeing Gendry, so he can't go to the Iron Bank of Bravos and get Stannis an army, and Stannis can't come. I mean, all of these things, there's, there are so many lives that are, are affected just by Sam surviving Jon Snow's. Davos Seaworth's, Gendry's um, life, perhaps. Uh, because does Davos have the stones to free Gendry? Probably he does, but you still have to ask, would he have the stones if he didn't have that note in his back pocket before he did so, after he found out that Rob Stark had been killed? Um, so uh, Sam greatly affects the story. And really, so does Gilly, by the fact that she survives, too, Um I mean, she helps Sam out with Eamon a little bit. And uh, you got, again, I'll just say, I love that she named the baby Sam. Uh, well, in the show anyway. Uh, but the fact that she is there uh, in season four presents its own kind of problem for Sam because he wants to protect her. And so he sends her to Moletown. And if she's not at Moletown, then do the people at Castle Black get the warning that a grits group is coming from the south? I mean, you have to suspect that Jon Snow would have known that that's what the plan was. But since they hadn't seen him for so long and, and Jon, you know, was off gallivanting all the way up to Craster's and back uh, in the meantime. I mean, uh, if the Grits group is coming and and Gilly doesn't warn Castle Black about it, um, can they even prepare from an attack coming from that direction? So there you go. Um, I guess that takes care of all of the Bran uh, storyline and the Sam storyline for, for this particular episode. Again, you know, I worry about Bran just as much as I worry about uh, uh, about uh, any of the Starks because I feel like he's in a place where he might not be able to uh, be able to control his powers, you know, Warging into Hodor? Who else will he warg into? Will he warg into Mira? Will he warg into uh, this raven, three-eyed raven dude? Lots of scary stuff. Uh, Ramsey and the Greyjoys are what appear uh, next, so to speak, um, after the reveal from Roos Bolton that uh, Ramsey is, in fact, of course, his, uh, the captor of Theon. Um, and there's a remark that Ramsey makes actually that I think should actually be more of a clue to us about Roos and explain his ruthlessness. 
Uh, Ramsey says that his mother told him not to throw stones at cripples, but his father said aim for their heads. And that's cruel. Um, and it doesn't just say a lot about Ramsey, but it also Roos. Um, it makes him that much more atrocious, doesn't it? As if Roos's part in the Red Wedding wasn't enough. But it makes you wonder what atrocities this father and son will commit in the future. It's really kind of scary to think about now, right? Um, I will say that it was nice to see that last little bit of defiance from Theon before he kind of like finally submitted to the whole reek thing. Uh, I think that the process of him breaking has been the reason why we needed so much torture throughout the whole season for Theon. As uncomfortable as it was, um, as many people were like uh, Bubba and uh, Catfish saying, skip ahead. Uh, I think it was important to see him totally get broken because that's what pays off the whole thing of him rejecting uh, Yara in season four. Which, here here comes that scene too where, you know, Yara is declaring that she's going to go get Theon in defiance of her father. And basically, Balon has washed his hands of the boy. He says, well, he can produce no errors. He's no good to me. You know, well, we've we've got what can produce errors in in, in this box here, uh, so he's pretty much done with Theon. Um, and Balon is actually the last of the three leeches, right? Because Stannis in this season threw in one for Rob, one for Joffrey. Both of those guys are gone now, but Balon's still there. Maybe his downfall is more metaphoric. We were all thinking, possibly. Um, by the end of season four, uh, it looks like most of his holdings are gone. It looks like he's been pretty much kicked out of the north by Ramsey and the gang. So um, he's obviously got a daughter that's not listening to him, but he is still alive. So it makes you wonder, did the leeches really work or not? What do you think? Um, were the red and purple weddings just a happy coincidence? I know I ask that question like almost every episode, it seems like, uh, looking at it from one side or the other. But I really would like to hear what you think about those leeches. Uh, and, and I'll go back to that big speech that Yara gave uh, in this episode. I was talking about the Theon, the way he rejected her. Um, and she does. She gives this big speech. I'm going to go get Theon and everything. And it's all for naught. So... In retrospect, I'm wondering how you guys feel. Um, were they just giving Yara something to do in order to keep her in the storyline, to help stretch her storyline out? And if that's the case, I mean, what could that mean about her storyline in the future? Um, is there more of a Yara storyline that they're trying to put off? Is there, uh, or was it just a way to, to fill minutes inside television episodes? Uh, who knows? What do you think? And I guess that's it for the the Ramsey Theon thing. Um, poor Theon doesn't seem to really be any better off at the end of season four than he is at the end of season three. So his brain is mush. Uh, Dragonstone, and I, I spoke about Sam's information saving Davos before. Uh, it's that information that saves Davos when he is arrested, of course, for freeing Gendry. Speaking of which, once again, on behalf of Samantha739 on Twitter, where is Gendry? She used to tweet those three words to me all the time during season four. 
Um, he must row. Here's my answer, Samantha. He rows at a slower pace than Mansrader moves an army. Uh, it's gotta be it. That's, that's what it's gotta be. Uh, he just doesn't row any faster than Mance Raider can move an army because you just don't see him this in season four. So he's still out there rowing a boat. Um, he's not very good at it. Remember, we find out that he's never even really been in a boat before, uh, <laughs> uh, with Davos or at least not on his own. So, um, there's a great rewatch question to ask about that final scene though with Davos and Stannis and Melisandre when, after Gendry has been freed and, because Stannis has absolutely made up his mind about executing Davos. But Melisandre does stop him after she puts that message that Davos gave him uh, into the fire and looks into the flames, right? She says that Davos will have a part to play in the coming war. So my question to you is, do you think that we've already seen that in season four? Remember, if, if it wasn't for Davos speaking up for Stannis at the Bank of Bravos then Stannis has no army to take to the wall. So that's a pretty big part, right? you got to give the guy an army uh, to, to play a part in the war. But is there more? And what do you think Melisandre saw in the flames for Davos? So there's my question. Speaking of Melisandre and looking into the flames, uh, I'll tie everything for with Gendry and the King's Blood argument into the mix here. Uh, obviously, Stannis and Melisandre are willing to have sacrificed Gendry after they get the word of Rob Stark's death. So that, to them, seemingly proves the leeches. But let's not forget that there are other people with quote-unquote king's blood, too, even in this family. Stannis's daughter, Shireen, obviously has king's blood. So now I think of the, the scene in season four where Melisandre is looking into the flames with Stannis's wife, Selyse, and saying, we have to bring Shireen along. Um, why do they have to bring Shireen along? Hopefully it doesn't have to do with King's Blood. Hopefully it's not a sacrifice that we're thinking of. Because um, I, I think we've pretty well established that Stannis would never, ever have that. It would be probably the one thing that could turn Stannis against Melisandre, I would think. Especially given the care that he, he demonstrated for for Shireen this season. Well... I guess as much care as Stannis ever seems to show anybody <laughs> anyway. But, uh, yeah. Um, speaking of Stannis, think about the way that we thought of him in the past two seasons and, and compared to the way we think of him now. Or is there a comparison to make? Because in season two, yes, he was the rightful heir, of course, but we saw him and Melisandre do some pretty dirty things, right? Like to Renly. In this season, he's going to sacrifice Gendry. Um, those are all some pretty good reasons not to like him very much, I think. Um, plus, you know, he's in the Battle of Blackwater. He's up against Tyrion. So who do you root for there? But now he's at the wall at the end of season four. And I'm wondering, has your opinion of Stannis changed any? Do you root for him more now than maybe you did before? Or have you always rooted for him and now you're feeling justified? Or are you still wary that he might do anything to win the throne as he appears to have been willing to do in seasons two and three? Um, have you never liked this guy at all and still don't? There's lots of ways you can weigh in on Stannis, and I would love to hear uh, your thoughts on that. Now, for me, there's a point in this very episode where I really started liking Stannis uh, a whole lot more. 
and I think I mentioned this when we were doing our fan call-in shows or, or our second look podcast back in season three. Um, the scene where he would said he would not allow his kingdom to bleed anymore. Now that, uh, really moved me for some reason. It made me think that Stannis is trying to do for the good of all. Um, maybe his methodology is not so great, but, uh, he, he has good intentions. I know road to hell, right? Uh, road to seven hells in this case with Westeros. Um, cause granted he, he wants to use blood magic, uh, to unite everyone, but, uh, not unlike Tywin who tries to justify what he's doing. Stannis also tries to justify what he's doing. He points out that the Targaryens use dragons to unite Westeros. And you have to think that if Danny ever gets to Westeros, she would use dragons too, right? So what distinguishes these different kinds of magics for you? Is there no distinguishment to make in your mind? Um, is one type of magic better than the other? Are dragons better than blood magic? What do you think? Let me know. Send me an email. I don't guess I have any more questions about Stannis for this episode. So let's move on to Jon Snow. Now, this scene with Ygritte, we do now have a definitive answer to the question that I many, I think, asked after this season three scene with Ygritte. Well, okay, I know I asked it when I first saw it. I asked, did Ygritte really intend to kill Jon or not? And then you get that conversation in the beginning of season four with Tormund Giantsbane that Igrit has, and that would possibly indicate that she did intend to kill him. But I think it becomes pretty clear by the end of season four when they face each other at Castle Black that the answer is definitively no. I mean, she couldn't kill him here at the end of season three, and she couldn't kill him at the end of season four either. And ultimately, that's what costs uh, Ygritte her life. One thing that is clear is that Ygritte, even if she doesn't intend to kill John, she definitely intends on hurting him, on making him remember her. And what I find interesting is a parallel between this and what happens to Ygritte in season four is, yes, here she issues some physical pain to John uh, for his betrayal to her. But I think the ultimate hurting of John, the thing that hurts John the worst, is the emotional pain because she can't kill him in season four and she ends up dying. I mean, he was terribly upset when he burned her body. And at Tormund's request, uh, I love how that trio just keeps circling around. Um, so that, uh, you know, uh, he she did give him both the physical and emotional pain in the end. Um, and, of course, after he's hurt, he does end up back at Castle Black with Sam once again. He's in pretty bad shape, but, again, you know, Mance Raider's army and even Grit's band of wildlings, they're, they're moving, what, about a centimeter a day? Just slightly faster than Gendry's rowing a boat? So there's lots of time in Season 4 for John to heal and have adventures uh, way before the wildlings ever seemingly get there. And that's really all I got to say about John at this point. Uh, we'll move on to Daenerys, the last subject matter for this particular podcast, since it was the last scene in the book or in the, in the show, in the book, 
I've been doing too many book podcasts lately. We just started the the season or the feast dance tandem read. Anyway, uh, let's see. And I'm also on my last recording, and I've done several of them in a row. So forgive me. Uh, anyway, stop excusing Matt and just uh, or making excuses and just talk about Daenerys. Um, it it's again just one scene really, I, I, and. <laughs> We watched it the first time around, and we did our Fan Colin show, and and we did our second look podcast, and everything. I think I remember calling it something like a, a grandiose musical number, or something like a Hello Dolly moment, or something like that, because it did. It seemed like a musical production with all the ooing and awing of the chorus, and her being lifted around, and the way the shot pulled back, and all of that stuff. I was just thinking, oh, this is straight out of uh, one of the great. Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan shows or something like that. But um, uh, going back, though, and, and rewatching this, I, I think you can actually see how much the fact that she is adored by all of these people at Yunkai. They call her Misa, which means mother. Um, I, I think that that really informs um, the way she approaches Marine in season four. Um and many times that's a matter of an overreaction. Uh, she overreacts to the slavers in Marine uh, by, you know, crucifying them the same way they did some of the slaves. But it's because now she has taken all of these slaves and any slaves that she's going to free um, as her own children, uh, in a way. Children that she can never have, evidently. And because she needs to protect these slaves, um, that, I think, also motivates... Uh, another overreaction, which is to chain all of the dragons up at the end of season four, um, or at least the ones that are uh, available to her. One's still out there running around. I mean, she's offering a protection to children um, from <laughs> her dragons, her children. Uh, anyway, my my point is is that I don't know if that happens so much. Astapor isn't enough to make her be so aggressively protective of slaves as much as she is in Marine. Um, but I think that this moment does solidify that. And it's really, you know, you can debate as to whether that's the best thing for her personally or not. Um, and I guess that adds to that kind of savior cliche. I mean, her being there, there, all of these slaves, mother. Um, I think that that is pretty easily attached by us to Daenerys sometimes that whole cliche, but the fact that she is flawed, the fact that she is doing things that are in extreme sometimes here in see in season four and even here in season three. Um, I think that's what makes that particular savior trope, kind of a little less tropey. I don't know what you'd say there, but it, it seems a little less cliche because she, she, it's not like she's, um, just the good guy in white hat. Um, she does make mistakes. She's not a bad person by any stretch, but she does make mistakes. So that helps sell the moment. And again, I, I think that this scene really, um, helps her realize, um, perhaps a difference in her mission. Um, we see her reject going to Westeros a couple of times, uh, in this season and, uh, in season four. So, uh, because she's, on, she's on a mission from God, right?
And one last thing, got to do this. It's my one last, you know, it's not a podcast episode unless I do some kind of stupid tomato, right? Where I'm nitpicking at something that, that, that doesn't really matter. Um, but in this scene, look at how small those dragons are. I mean, they're tiny compared to the way that we see them in season four. So being throwing a tomato, have they just grown faster? Or is this an indication of a passage of a lot of time, which I don't think. I think that it is the, the former if you're going to try to explain it at all. Um, mostly, I think that they just became bigger in season four because it made it a lot more convenient that a dragon would want a full sheep as dinner or a child as dinner as opposed to the, the little runts that they were uh, in the end of season three here. Um I really do wish that they had made the growth of the dragons more progressive during season four or even during this season, season three, you know, rather than it just seemingly jumping from the size of a monkey to the size of a horse in the blink of an eye, right? So there is my last tomato for our rewatch, and I will be back with some closing thoughts in just a moment. Thanks again for joining me. Don't forget that you can still submit feedback. You only have a day or two by the time you hear this podcast, if I'm doing my math right. You have until the 2nd of February. Uh, That would be 2015. Hopefully we're all in 2015 right now. Uh, But I'll include any feedback that you have in a special feedback episode next week. It would be next week, I think. Uh, and if you are a book reader, uh, a BR, as our good buddy Axel Foley likes to call us, we are continuing our tandem read of George R. R. Martin's fourth and fifth books, A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, during this hiatus too. Um, it also includes TV-friendly NBR, non-book reader, as Axel Foley likes to call you, an NBR. It includes, uh, Definitely includes the uh, the news is going to be spoiler free. You don't have to worry about being spoiled uh, of any book stuff or any TV spoilers uh, whatsoever during our news section. So please be sure to listen to those uh, so that you can uh, keep up with what's going on in Game of Thrones. Yay! And uh, I talked about Axel a lot. So why not let him tell you how to contact me right now? And remember, winter is always coming. I think it will be pretty darn winter by the time you hear this. Take care. You've been listening to Podcast Winterfell. Find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840.